page 782, Nahum 2, verses 3 through 10. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here, um, to hear your word and to worship you with people who know you and who love you. I pray that you would still our minds and our hearts, help us to be receptive to hearing from you. I pray that we would be open to what we hear and that we would have direct opportunity and boldness to apply it each day this week. We love you, Lord, and may that continue to grow. In your name we pray. Thank you, James. Thanks to the musicians <clears throat> for leading us this morning to the Fitzpatricks, and congratulations to that family for this baptism in their household. Wonderful morning already. I want to invite you to open to Nahum chapter 2, page 782. If you're using the Bible that's from the seat that's right there in front of you, I hope you'll open a Bible either on your phone or that one or the one you brought with you. I'm so thankful God gets to decide what we talk about when we're together, which is my way of saying at Parker Hills, our philosophy for what we teach is just take books of the Bible and explain them. I'm so glad God gets to decide what we talk about when we're together because I would never have chosen to talk about some of these things. God wants to talk to us this morning about visualization. I remember the first time I encountered visualization. You know what I mean by that? This sort of self-improvement technique. That's not what God's trying to do with us, but in our culture, this self-improvement technique where you cultivate mental images of a positive outcome or a change you want to see in yourself, you want to experience that in reality, so you visualize it in your imagination. I remember the first time I encountered it. A friend in college was going through a serious medical illness, a serious illness, and had started receiving medical treatment and her doctor suggested to her that she use visualization, that she stop what she was doing several times a day and imagine the therapy healing her body as she just closed her eyes and pictured that. So she told me she was picturing, she, she was using this image of tiny Hessian soldiers, like from the Revolutionary War, little hired German mercenaries, like like marching through her body, waging war against this illness and eliminating the disease inside of her. It's the first time I'd ever heard of that. 
Now, since then, I've encountered it a lot in self-help literature, the testimony of elite athletes, medical treatment, a host of other fields. I'm sure you have too. It seems to just be growing in popularity as we and our culture try more and more to harness the mysterious power of the mind-body connection. I don't have much to say about that. I actually don't. I don't care about the origins of it. I don't care about whether you know, it works or doesn't. That's not my point at all. What's interesting to me is how our text for today actually uses it. Our text is not recommending that we do it or anything like that. It doesn't recommend that people sit and imagine a positive outcome. It actually shows them a positive outcome in dramatic and vivid detail. Now, I want to be clear, it's not a text about self-improvement or achievement. No one wins the masters with a perfect putt in today's text. I I meant that to be somewhat sarcastic. No one wins the masters with a perfect putt in this text. No one overcomes their fear of bats by picturing themselves in a cave with these leathery, furry, toothed, you know, flying creatures fluttering around their heads. That's not what's happening at all. Instead, this text is a detailed, real, look at it. Nahum chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, if you were listening as Shoshana read, you know this is a detailed, real-time description of the collapse and fall of Nineveh, the most feared existential threat to God's people. When Nineveh conquered, they wiped out their foes. This was an existential threat. It threatened the very existence of the people of God. And this text is a description of their fall. And here's the thing. There's no explanation given for why this text is here, and there's no apparent need for it in the agenda of the book itself. Unless the purpose of seeing Nineveh fall is simply to accomplish something in the mind and hearts of readers when they see it happen in their mind's eye. In the program of the book, that's not necessary to what Nahum seems to be trying to do. I mean... It doesn't give us the promise of Nineveh's fall. That was the last text that James preached last Sunday, where God promises he will humble Nineveh, and people can hope in that. It's not that. This isn't the rationale for Nineveh's fall. That was in the first sermon we heard from the beginning of Nineveh, where God describes himself and why it is in his nature that this city must be put down. It's not even a reminder of the evil of Nineveh. That's the last portion of this book. The evil that deserved to be treated this way. That's how the book closes. We'll look at that next Sunday. In this text, the promised fall of Nineveh takes place before our very eyes. Look at it. We see invaders charging and breaching walls and plundering the city. We hear their shouts to each other and the conquered citizens moaning in anguish. We watch as the populace of Nineveh goes off into captivity. We see pale faces and weak knees and melting hearts. Why is this here? What could Nahum's purpose be in visualizing for his readers how it went down when Nineveh collapsed? What could his purpose be? Why would he stoke their imagination with the speed of the assault and the helplessness of Nineveh's defenses and the utter collapse of that powerful city? 
why would he give his readers a vision of their fiercest foe, desolate and ruined? Be thinking about that as we go through. Why is this here? Let me explain it. There are three stanzas. The first one, verses three through five, is the siege of the city. Verses six through nine is the collapse of the castle. And verse 10 is the rapid recap. Those are the three stanzas. The siege of the city, three through five. The collapse of the castle, six through nine. And the rapid recap. The first stanza is those first three verses. The siege of the city. Look at verse three. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come flashing, come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Now, in spite of the grim content, the poetry is actually really aesthetically pleasing. Let me just point out what's going on in the poetry of the stanza. There's this nice sort of mirror structure to it. In verse 3a, the men approach. In 3b, the chariots approach. In verse 4, the chariots are engaged in battle. And in verse 5, the men are engaged in battle. There's design, there's stylization to the poetry. But more than that, I'm sure you noticed the staccato effect of the short sentences and vivid images in dynamic verbs. Notice how short the sentences are? You can feel the chaos and the frenzy of the battle. That's the purpose of giving this to us in poetry. Notice that visual images dominate this whole stanza. You don't get the sounds or the smells of battle. Instead, we see the sights, right? Look at it. You see color and flashing lights and weapons of war and rapid movement, chariots and spears and siege towers. In verse 3, the color red dominates. Nineveh fell to that new power of Babylon whose armies wore scarlet. Notice the way the poet uses light. Verse 3, flashing metal off the chariots. Verse 4, Gleam like torches, dart like lightning. Chariots and horses and marching, running armies, they raised a lot of dust. But through the dust, you can see in your mind's eye these flashes of light that penetrate through the haze of battle. The overall point of this stanza is the speed of the battle and how unstoppable that army is that's coming against Nineveh. Look at it. Verse 4. Chariots race madly. They rush to and fro. Verse 5, pictures officers running so fast, they're tripping over themselves getting to the wall. That's what's happening in verse 5. There's so much frenzy, so much haste. So, and, and Nahum's just describing it for us, just setting it out there in our mind's eye. Who's the he? You notice there's this he and this his that sort of dominates the stanza? The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers. Verse 5, he remembers his officers. Well, it could be the scatterer. Look back up at chapter 2, verse 1. There's this unnamed enemy just called the scatterer who has come up against you. That verse is addressed to the city of Nineveh. 
So the he in this stanza could be the scatterer. Um, It's highly possible that it's just that agent. But the closest referent is actually in verse 2. Do you see that? The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. It's very possible that it's the Lord. I mean, back up in chapter 1, the Lord explicitly claims responsibility for the fall of Nineveh. Look at verse 9. Nahum 1.9, why do you plot, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end, trouble will not arise a second time. Verse 14, speaking to Nineveh, the Lord has given command about you, no more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off carved images and metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. So it seems to be the Lord's army, the Lord's officers, the Lord's chariots in this stanza. That doesn't mean he used a supernatural um, opponent or a supernatural force to wipe out Nineveh. No, it simply means he used the Babylonians as his agent to get it done. So stanza one, three through five, shows the siege of the city, swift and unstoppable. Let's look at the collapse of the castle in verses six through nine. The second stanza. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh's like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. So the second stanza, like the first one, is really clearly aesthetically stylized. This is, this is beautiful poetry, the content notwithstanding. This one doesn't have that same sort of chiastic structure. This one has a parallel structure. Look, verse 6, water imagery, the palace melts away. Same in verse 8, water imagery, the people run away. In between, you've got verse 7, the victims are taken, and in verse 9, the wealth is taken. So you've got water imagery, the palace melting, and victims taken away. Then you've got water imagery, the people run, and the wealth is taken away. It's possible that this flood imagery is metaphorical for this surging enemy uh, army. But it's also possible that literal water played a role in the fall of Nineveh. We just don't know. We do know the city was built on the east bank of the Tigris River. There was a moat that surrounded the city 150 feet wide, filled with water diverted from that river and others that flowed through the city itself. Inside the moat, 150 foot wide water moat around the city, inside that moat was a wall that was 60 feet tall in places rising to 100 feet tall and so wide that three chariots could ride next to each other along the top of this wall. In addition to that, there were towers, some of which rose 200 feet above the ground to support the wall and the troops that would be used to defend the city. This is an impregnable force. There were 15 gates, all reinforced, that would offer entrance into the city. Some speculate that the Babylonians closed the gates of the dam 
that was further upstream on the Tigris River and some of these others. They closed those gates, dammed up that river for some time, and then opened those gates and water rushed through the city and literally melted all of those defenses. That could be what verse 6 is describing. You see that, right? Once the palace is washed away, the rest of the city collapses as well. In verse 7 now, the sights of battle give way to the sounds. And that's what dominates the rest of this stanza. You've got slave girls in verse 7, moaning like doves. In verse 8, a voice calls out. And in verse 9, another command is shouted. Now we're hearing things, not just seeing. Verse 7, the Hebrew is really difficult to translate. I'm not good at Hebrew, but I can make my way through it enough. And then you notice how many different translations there are in English. Let me just try to explain to you. The subject of verse 7 is ambiguous. The ESV says its mistress is stripped and carried off. But neither the Bible nor history tells us much about the queens of the Assyrian Empire. Those ladies just don't figure much into the story. Besides, and more importantly, there's not really a noun, a subject like that in the Hebrew of the sentence. It's just her. It's just an ambiguous she. So with that generic subject, she, it could refer to the city of Nineveh itself. All of the inhabitants are stripped and all of them are carried away. She, the whole city, is being carried away in verse 7. That's certainly what verse 8 describes. Look at it. The whole city is like a ruined pool whose waters are just rushing out through all the holes in the wall. But the waters aren't water, it's people. Not one person responds to the command to halt. They're just all fleeing. In in verse 9, another voice speaks. This voice doesn't command the citizens to stop. This voice commands the invaders to plunder the wealth. Nineveh was a fabulously wealthy city, and you can imagine why. Every enemy they encountered, they conquered. And when they conquered, they didn't just subjugate and require tribute. They would take everything and hoard it in their capital city. Nineveh was filled with gold and silver and precious stones. Beyond measure, gathered from all these other conquered kingdoms, but now they are treated just as they treated others. Their citizens are deported. Their wealth is depleted. Verse 10, the third stanza, gives us the rapid recap. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. So we hear now in the din of this battle, Another voice, it could be the same voice now speaking, but instead of giving a command, it utters a final verdict over the city. Total devastation. People shattered and demoralized. Look at those two words paired up, desolation and ruin. That's the summary. That's the verdict. That's all that's left. And then there's this description of these anguished people, hearts melting, knees trembling, Weak in the loins, pale faces. One commentator sums it up like this. Palmer Robertson says, quote, In any case, the picture pulsates with the reality of the situation. Terror reigns on every side. Those who for generations have made a way of life 
out of striking fear into the hearts of others, now know firsthand the horror and fear of God's own judgment. That's what's happening. So there it is. The description of the battle. Swift and fierce, unstoppable and complete. And we're left with the question, why is this here? It's not a promise. That already happened. It's not rationale. We've seen that earlier. It's not a description of the evil of Nineveh. It's just the fall of the city. Why would Nahum give his readers a vision of their fiercest foe, desolate and ruined? Here's my best answer. This is what I think this section of scripture is about. Apparently, God's people need to see their enemies devastated and ruined, crushed and defeated. That's all I've got. Apparently, God's people need to see, to see with their mind's eye, their fiercest foe crushed and defeated, devastated and ruined. There are many writers in Scripture who skip the drama of battle and they just get to the summary. Look at Revelation 19. This stands out most clearly when you get to the final battle at the end of all things. Look at Revelation 19. The end of chapter 19, describing this amazing cataclysmic battle at the end of all things, sets it up in verse 19, Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beast, this is John writing this vision that he's seen coming at the end of time. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So you're poised to see the battle, the stage is set, the field of battle is filled with opponents and, and the armies of heaven and verse 20. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image and those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a definitive moment but it's not descriptive at all. Big battle and the beast was captured. That's all you got. Definitive, not descriptive. Nahum does the opposite. It's very descriptive and no explanation as to why. Apparently, Nahum wants his readers to see the battle, to hear the mourners, to watch the city fall. That seems significant to me. In other words, the point of this text is not simply Nineveh falls, but it's something more dramatic like, come see Nineveh fall. Some of you got real uncomfortable when I said, God wants to talk to us about visualization. Some of you are squirming so bad and you're ready to resign your membership because that's Eastern mysticism. And what is happening in this text except visualization? Not for self-improvement. But God wants his people to see the fall of their enemies. The, the point of the text is come see Nineveh. Watch it collapse before your very eyes. The prophet's point has something to do with that. And yet... The description of the city's fall is not filled with wanton violence, is it? It's just not. If an angry man with murderous thoughts toward his enemies were to read this passage, it would not feed his bloodlust, right? Nahum's focus is not even on heroic deeds. The point is the complete inability of Nineveh to defend itself. 
The point is not be amazed at the great warrior. The point is don't be afraid of that great enemy. That's the point. They can't stop God's destruction of them. That's the point, right? Self-satisfied glee is not the result of reading this. The result of reading this is to diminish any sense of fear or awe that Israel would have about Nineveh. They just don't look that scary anymore as they fall apart. And so I conclude this. This is all I got. God's people need to see their fiercest foe devastated and ruined, crushed and defeated. God's people need to see, not just believe. See. See. For Israel, their fiercest foe at this moment was good as gone. If they read Nahum, they would watch it happen. What would that have done for them? When they watched the most ferocious empire history had ever seen, unstoppable, devastating, devouring, what would it have done for them to see that empire stopped and devastated and devoured? What would that have done for them? I don't know, but I can imagine. Can't you? Their sense of peace and settledness. Their inability to be flustered by what they heard in the news about the approach of Assyria once again. They just watched Nineveh fall. Their sense of confidence in God. Right? Their hope for the future. I can, I can see why God's people need to see their fiercest foe crushed and defeated. Have you noticed now the way the New Testament goes out of its way to describe to us in vivid detail the effects of the cross? Because that's where this sermon needs to go. It puzzles me when people think that Israel is somehow equated with America and their political enemies are somehow America's political enemies. That is such horrid theology. The people of God in the Old Covenant were a physical people with physical promises and physical effects. The people of God in the New Covenant are a spiritual people with spiritual promises receiving spiritual benefits and effects. How is that not plain to us? Can we get that nailed down? Okay, so when the New Testament comes to the cross, it doesn't talk about the conquering effect of Jesus' defeat of some political entity, right? James was so clear on this last week and it was so helpful. The people of God today are a multinational, multi-ethnic group who are unified by their faith in Jesus and as such, our most ferocious feared enemies are the enemies of all humanity, namely the devil and sin and death. And Jesus took them to the woodshed. The question is, can you see it? Yes, yes, thank you. Can you see it? We need to see it, not just believe it, but see it, all right? Let me give you some texts about this. 1 John 3, 8, Jesus taking it to the devil. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How about this one? Colossians 2.15. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Jesus. Can you see that with the eyes of your heart? 
The devil himself who has waged war on humanity since the first creation. And we've never beat him. Ever one time. No challenger has ever. Israel, God's appointed son, firstborn son, out in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because they wouldn't believe God. And every moment in the wilderness was one more death and one more failure after another because they just kept believing lies. Where do those come from? The father of lies. Until one man, the true Israel, goes to battle in the wilderness, 40 days, no food, nothing to drink, and the devil comes to him and he wins. Jesus wins for the first time ever. A man beat the devil and he never stopped winning. He threw demons out left and right. He said to the disciples, I see Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Can you picture it? Can you picture the devil under his feet, conquered, quivering, scared, defeated, and someday soon, gone. Can you see it? That's why this text is here. How, how, about, how about death? How about death? That's a bad enemy. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or how about 1 Corinthians 15? Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Over what? Death. Are you kidding me? No. Here's this other enemy, formerly undefeated, unstoppable, utterly Utterly impervious to the tears and begging pleas and prayers of humanity. Please don't let my mother die. Please don't let my child die. Please don't let me die. And everybody dies. And death always wins. Until Jesus showed up. Can you see him? That hooded specter with the big sickle reaping one person after another, quivering under Jesus' feet like a coward. Because he wins. How about sin? Hebrews 9.26 As it is, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You who were dead in trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Jesus, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it all aside, nailing it to the cross. Can you see it? Can you see sin defeated? The addictions that will not yield, the shame that will not go away. The guilt that you cannot explain away. Can you see it washed away in the flood, not of the Tigris River, but of the blood of Jesus? Can you see it collapsing, washed away? Because you are free. Sin is a defeated foe. All of you who are like, oh man, he's going to talk about visualization. I'm out of here. Aren't you thankful for visualization in the Bible? 
That's the question. Can you see it? And if you're not a Christian, this is how Christians view the world. We view the world, according to the Bible, as war. But it's not war against people whose politics we don't agree with or other nations. It's not even war against individual non-Christians. It's war against the worst enemies of all humanity. And you might not even believe in the devil, but surely you know the effects of guilt, the guilt of sin. And you certainly know that you, like us, are headed for death. What are you going to do about that? Don't you want a champion? Don't you want in Jesus to be able to see it, defeated those enemies under his feet? That's what this passage in Nineveh is all about. And it just leaves us with one big conclusion and one big question. God's people need to see their fiercest foes utterly crushed and defeated under his feet. Can you see it? Father, we pray that you would open our eyes in this specific way to the glory of Jesus. That the cross doesn't just erase our guilt, but it defeats our foes. Jesus, we're so grateful to have a champion who came from heaven, suffered under the devil and sin and death for us and won. Thank you. We love you. We trust you, we admire you, we look to you, and we want more clearly than ever to see you. So please, open our eyes even as we receive communion and sing these closing songs. For it's in your name that we hope and pray. Amen. Communion is another opportunity to visualize. Spurgeon used to say, When you receive communion, don't look at it, look through it. Look through the elements until you can say, yes, I see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what the bread and juice are, symbols of Jesus. Bread broken, picturing his body. Grapes crushed, picturing his blood, all given for us. So if you're a Christian, Take a few moments, reflect on what you've heard, thank God, picture Jesus conquering, and then come receive bread and wine as symbols of him whom you trust. If you're not a Christian, what we want for you and what the Bible would encourage and exhort you to do is take Jesus as your savior by faith. Don't come take bread and juice. We're happy you're here. We're glad you've listened. We want you to sing along with us and be welcomed by us. But this is the one part of this service we'd ask you not to participate in because these symbols are only fitting and meaningful for people who have already trusted Jesus. All right? So take a few moments, reflect on what you've heard, and then come as we sing.